All right, so let's talk about Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is a big term that gets uh, a bunch of stuff <laughs> labeled, and people tend to think that they know what Gnosticism is based on, I don't know, what they've heard, maybe what they read on Wikipedia or whatever. But the term Gnosticism is a Greek term that was used a lot during the time of the Bible, during the time of the Apostle Paul, during the time of Jesus, and it's a word that's in the Bible quite a bit. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, and the Greek word gnosis means to have knowledge that comes through experience, to know something by experience, to know it because you've experienced it with your senses. It's something that's very real to you. Uh, it's a personal, intimate, experiential knowledge. How's that? Now, sometime around... The second century, so 200 years after the time of Christ, is really when the church began to form. Remember, the Council of Nicaea, which is a really important council, happens about 312 A.D. So Jesus lives, we estimate, from about uh, 0 A.D., maybe uh, two years before the Common Era, and then dies, you know, tradition says, in his 30s. So 312, we're talking centuries later, is when Christianity, as we know it, really was formed. And it was formed at the Council of Nicaea. And the issue for the first uh, couple hundred years, first couple centuries of Christianity, was the nature of Jesus, who Jesus was, and the nature of Christ. That was part of it. But the other part of it was to distinguish or determine what was the true church and what was the right doctrine. In fact, the word orthodoxy, ortho means right, doxy means doctrine or teaching. It's where we get the word doctrine. So orthodoxy is right teaching or correct teaching. But you have to ask yourself the question, correct teaching according to whom, right? Correct teaching according to whom? Now, remember, I'm going to keep emphasizing this, three centuries after the time of Christ. The Bible doesn't even come along for about another 70 years after that, 40, 50, 60 years sometime around after the Council of Nicaea. And the Bible was not the canon. We talk about the canon of Scripture. The books that go into the Bible is known as the canon of Scripture. But the word canon is another word that's that's kind of foreign to us, but it simply means the measure, the measure of rule. Now, this is important because for Christians, evangelical Christians in America, um, Protestant Christians, charismatic Christians, word of faith Christians, um, wacky Christians, good Christians <laughs> that aren't part of the Orthodox faith or the Catholic faith. By that, I mean Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Roman Catholicism, Coptic, any of those older churches that go back to the, the, the councils that aren't part of the Reformation. They say that the, they talk about the canon of Scripture. They say that the Scripture is the canon or the Scripture is the measure. Now, when the scriptures were put together, this is really important, when, they, when it was decided which books would go into the Bible, the canon, or the measure of faith, was not the scripture itself. The measure of faith, or orthodoxy, was the creeds that were given. So the, the scriptures were chosen, the books of the Bible were chosen, based on a number of different things, but primarily to support the canon that was decided or began to be decided at the, at the Council of Nicaea in terms of the Nicene Creed. Now, the Nicene Creed not only has to do with the issue of the person of Christ, that he is God of very God, light of very light. They made Jesus equal with God at the Council of Nicaea. But there's other things in the Nicene Creed that are important to this issue of orthodoxy and how 
or not this issue of orthodoxy, this issue of Gnosticism versus what we call orthodoxy or Gnosticism versus religion. Because as you go through the Nicene Creed, it also talks about, I believe in one holy, apostolic, and Catholic church. And the word Catholic means universal. The key is I believe in one that is apostolic. <clears throat> because historians, Bible scholars tell us that the first, uh, you know, hundred years, let's say, of Christianity was pretty diverse. There was a lot of diversity within faith and belief within Christianity. We know this from the writings of the church fathers. Now, the church fathers, what we call the church fathers, were the ones that were chosen by the Orthodox Church or by the one holy apostolic Catholic Church, more or less when the creeds started being formed in the fourth century. So it's about in the fourth century that they start deciding who's a church father, who isn't, who has right doctrine, who doesn't, who is teaching what Jesus and the apostles taught, who isn't teaching what Jesus and the apostles taught. And then ultimately, based on that body of knowledge, which books went into the Bible to make up the scriptures. And then much, 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 much later, when the Protestant Reformation happened, they wanted to break away from the Pope. They wanted to break away from the Catholic Church. So they had to come up with a new canon of authority. They had to come up with a new authority, sorry. And so they replaced uh, Scripture with the Pope. And they said, well, Scripture is our authority. And then later, evangelicals come along and say the Bible is inerrant. The Bible is absolutely the word of God. This is very much a 19th and 20th century development because even Martin Luther and John Calvin weren't necessarily inerrantists. They didn't necessarily believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. They understood that the Bible was part of the orthodox tradition that was given by the Catholic Church, but they were replacing it as authority. But they didn't go as far as the evangelicals went much, much later. And the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy didn't come around until the 1970s. So it's really kind of this modern phenomenon that we believe that we've got to be beholden to the book for all things concerning our faith and our rule of conduct and the inerrancy of the Bible and the absolute authority of the what we call the word of God and all that stuff. So... <clears throat> The issue, the issues that were boiling in the church was this. The issues that were boiling in the church was primarily, primarily between a group called the Gnostics, who called themselves the Gnostics, and a group that called themselves the Apostolic Church or believed that they had apostolic succession. The group that believed they had apostolic succession won the battle and destroyed most of the Gnostic Christian writings. So that up until the middle of the 20th century, the only thing that we knew or that people knew about what the Gnostics believed was how their opponents represented them in their arguments because they destroyed. In fact, there was an order that went out that said all the Gnostic uh, literature and books and whatever had to be destroyed. This is coming from the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Are you all tracking with me? <clears throat> so, is this making sense to you? Because this is important. You're, you're going to see how this all kind of comes together in a minute, how religion gets formed out of this. So, 
The issue became this. The issue became one of authority and one of control. This is why it's one holy and apostolic church. Because the Gnostics taught that Jesus primarily came to give us knowledge and to help us remember who we are so that we can discover our own divine spark and find our union with divinity through experiential knowledge. In other words, God is something that you can experience. Your own divinity is something that you can experience. And so because they valued personal experience and they value things like visions and dreams and intuitive knowledge, then what they would say is that your experience is the highest authority. For you, that is your religion, if you will. For you, that is your path. That is your way. That is your connection with God. And your vision, your experience of God is every bit as valid as anyone else's experience of God, including the people who wrote the Bible. (laughs) That's what they taught. You don't need the bishop. You don't need authority. The Gnostics were empowering women. Uh, They weren't making the same delineation and distinction as the Orthodox Church between women and men and who could have experience with God and who couldn't have experience with God. And then you have the bishops. You have this power structure beginning to develop within the church, again, by about the 3rd century, end of the 2nd century, 3rd century. And they wanted to say, no, there is one right doctrine. There is one orthodox way. And we have the orthodox way. And there's one way to salvation, and that's through the church. Now, please understand that salvation through faith alone did not come about until the uh, Reformation with Martin Luther. It didn't exist. I mean, I mean these things that we, we promote to people as basis on the authority of God, it didn't exist. Martin, came, Martin Luther came along and said, salvation is by faith alone. Sola fide was the term. Because prior to that, salvation was offered through the church by a state-ordained priest, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. A state-ordained priest offered you salvation as a child through baptism, or if you weren't baptized as a child, as an adult, so that salvation was through baptism. That was entrance into the kingdom. That was entrance into heaven. And then it was maintained through confessing your sins, through the the sacrament of the confessional. It was maintained through confirmation and the anointing of oil. It was maintained through the taking of the sacrament of the Holy Mass and of communion and being a member of the church, which is why excommunication from the church was important or a big deal because if you were excommunicated from the church, you were excommunicated from heaven. They would use the scripture, whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, Jesus mentions this in the Gospel of John to Peter. You, you get it? So salvation was through the church. It wasn't through your faith. It was through your membership until the Protestant Reformation and sola fide. So that's over a millennia. Over, you know, a thousand years roughly. After the Nicene Creed. So then we have faith alone, and your statement of faith was still tied to, to baptism. You made a public declaration of faith and were baptized, or if you were baptized as an infant, your public declaration of faith was at your confirmation. This was even how they did it in the Methodist church uh, that I was growing up in. And so this is how salvation worked until really about the 19th century, 
when um, really Billy Sunday, you, you can look up Billy Sunday. He was a traveling evangelist. He's the first one that started having like like revival meetings like like we think of today and having people come forward to receive salvation by praying a prayer. This is why you won't find this in the Bible. You won't find this in the writings of the church fathers. You won't find this in the Protestant writings much. John Calvin, you won't find this because John Calvin was hung up on predestination. So this whole idea that you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is a 20th century idea. All right. And it doesn't lead to any experience necessarily. I mean, some people have received Jesus. Some people get a touch and feel the presence of God and their life changes. But for the most part, they have that one experience and then they become indoctrinated in religion where they give up their own authority, their own sovereignty, their own experience to groupthink. Because orthodoxy, right teaching, is groupthink. So back to the Gnostics. The Gnostics said you can have experience with God. You can have ongoing experience with God, experiential knowledge of God. And that is as authoritative and as valid as anybody else's experience with God, including those that wrote the scriptures. Uh, so, so it's empowering people. It's empowering women. It's empowering people to be authentic and to experience life and to value and treasure and honor their own heart and their own experience at the expense of the group think, right? But now you got, you, you got this other group that was responsible for orthodoxy <laughs> that comes along and they say, no, we have the right doctrine. Well, how do you know you have the right doctrine? And here's what they said. We have apostolic succession. Now, here's what apostolic succession means. They said we have the right teaching or the right doctrine because we can trace our lineage of bishops back to one of the apostles. And the key issue for apostolic doctrine, this is so important, the key issue to say we have the right doctrine and we have apostolic succession and why then the Gnostics would come along and say, why is apostolic succession important? We have our own experience. We have contact with God. We have mystical knowledge. Why do we need you? Why do we need the church? And why is apostolic succession important? And they said the reason apostolic succession is important is not because the apostles heard the teachings of Jesus, that was part of it, but because the apostles were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that gave his teaching authority. So what they did was they created a lineage <laughs> from these church fathers that they could connect to an apostle, and the issue was the historical, the, 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 the observation of the historical crucifixion and res more, more importantly, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so basically we are to believe the Roman Catholic Church today. You're to believe the priest in the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Churches or the Coptic Churches, or there's a few others. We're to believe them today because they can trace all the way back to one of the apostles who was a eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. So this is literally how it worked. Uh, John saw Jesus resurrected, resurrected. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, supposedly, saw Jesus resurrected. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. 
Irenaeus, one of the first writers of the early church, was a disciple of Polycarp, and so on, until you get to Father Bob at your local Catholic church who's had hands laid on him and been instructed in the Catholic faith, the apostolic faith, and is part of the one holy and apostolic Catholic or universal church. Everybody tracking with me? <laughs> I hope I didn't lose you on all that. So that so that was the issue. Now, what's interesting is, is that in the, about the 1950s, I want to say 1940s or 1950s, the Nag Hammadi Library was discovered in Egypt, and they found scrolls that were the writings of the Gnostic uh, church, of the Gnostic teachers. So apparently, sometime they think around the 4th century, they believe it was Athanasius, who was responsible for the Nicene Creed, who put out a edict that all the documents of the Bible be burned, uh, I'm sorry, not the Bible, <laughs> except for the Bible, that especially the Gnostic writings be completely hunted down and destroyed. And there was a monastery where they stuffed the scrolls inside pots and buried them, and they were discovered. Unfortunately, the person who discovered them was using them for fire uh, kindling, so there was many manuscripts that were burnt. But there was many that was able to be restored and put back together. So we know a lot more about Gnosticism. We know a lot more about probably the culture of the time period of Jesus, uh, out of which all that stuff grew. Now, here's my issue with orthodoxy. Because people want to be orthodox about the Trinity. Now, this was the issue at the Nicene Creed. This was the issue at the Nicene Creed was what was the nature of Jesus? Now, remember, the Bible doesn't do this. Jesus does not give discourses on the Trinity anywhere in the Scriptures. In fact, you're hard-pressed to find proof of the Trinity in the Scripture. Sure, you can find proof of the deity of Christ. Anytime I put this out and say, you can't find proof of the Trinity in the Bible, people quote John 1 to me like I never read it before. <laughs> yes, there are statements where Jesus makes himself equal with God, or divine, or God, let's say where Jesus makes himself to be God. And there are places where the Holy Spirit is also spoken of as God. But a defined <clears throat> Trinitarian doctrine, where there's only the three, only the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, expressed as one, is in the Nicene Creed. That's where it becomes formatted. So people who are charismatics today, people who honor their experiences, and the reason I'm saying charismatics is because they believe in the present manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. But people are Christians who believe that God speaks today, that have visions, that have prophetic words, that have experienced the power of God and healing and demonstrations of the Spirit and power. That's the group I'm talking about. They will fight you to death over Trinitarian belief and Trinitarian doctrine. And it's very popular among the mystics. This is so ironic today because you have this whole mystical movement that elevates their experiences and they're trying to go back to the writings of the church fathers and the Nicene Creed to say that they're orthodox. That they are, that they have the right teaching and the right doctrine and they make this big deal out of the Trinity and how the Trinity saves us. But here's the thing. They, they have to draw that from the authority of the church fathers who also believed, listen to this, that unless you participated in the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, you were ever bit a heretic 
under those councils, in fact, maybe even more of a heretic than if you didn't believe in the Trinitarian doctrine. So they will renounce people as heretics who don't believe in the Trinitarian doctrine when they themselves do not adhere or belong to the one holy apostolic Catholic Church. And they'll change the language and they'll change the meaning and they'll cherry pick because they'll say, no, the the word Catholic just means universal and we believe in the universal church, but that's not what the Nationalists and the church fathers were saying because they were trying to stomp out the Gnostics and, and, and centralize a system of control over people's lives and that's how religion was born. And they had to stomp out and stamp out anybody that said that their experience was valid or, or that they, uh, because it might go contrary to the group and mess the whole thing up. And they certainly didn't want women in there involved. That's the church fathers that they love to quote and exalt and, and, and philosophize about and critique. Ugh. All right, just drives me nuts. It drives me crazy because we pick and choose. I'm going to call you a heretic because you don't believe in the Trinity when the Trinity isn't even in the in the Bible. It's in the creeds and part of the of the apostolic Catholic faith. But then I'm not going to adhere to the Catholic Church and their authority and their pope. And I'm not going to embrace other aspects of the Catholic faith like praying to the saints, which is what the communion of the saints and the creeds is about. So you would be condemned as a heretic more so for rejecting the Catholic Church and the authority of the pope than you would for rejecting the 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 trinity by the people who gave us the doctrines and wrote the stuff yet you're going to reject those ag- aspects of the faith and then you're going to uh uh, uh you're going to reject the catholic church you're going to reject praying to the you're going to highlight the trinity and then you're going to use those guys and say that you're orthodox they would say you're a heretic and going to hell it's so hypocritical, and most, and this is what bothers me the most, it's completely and totally ignorant. It is to completely misunderstand what was happening in the creeds and in the church histories. And if you want to be orthodox, if you want to adhere to right teaching and orthodoxy, then you also have to align yourself with a group of people who are responsible for the inquisitions, who are responsible for the crusades, who are responsible for uh, a lot of the... Uh, uh, stuff that was done to indigenous peoples in the Americas, uh, South America, the United States, all the way up into Canada, uh, down into Ireland, because the Irish, uh, the Celtic Catholic Church didn't want to conform to Augustinian doctrine. And so they rule, you, you're, you're aligning yourself with a group that rules through intimidation, violence, and bloodshed. That's how they, that's how they enforce their orthodoxy, their right teaching. And so if you align with that, you align with the energy of that, which also goes back to the energy of violence and genocide and and superiority and dominionism that is in the scriptures itself. That's religion, folks. That's what religion is. That's, That's the birthplace of religion. All of the Protestant churches, including the evangelical churches, the Pentecostal churches, and the charismatic churches, are the daughters of the Catholic Church. They may be stepdaughters, they may be bastard sons, because they have different, they, they don't know who their father is, or you, you understand what I'm saying? I, I'm not talking about the people, please. I'm not, I'm not calling the people bastard sons. I'm talking about the, the philosophies and the theologies and the system and the, and the power structures, uh, that are involved. I just got back onto Facebook. I don't want to get in Facebook jail again. <laughs>
So please, I'm, I'm not talking, I'm talking about religion. I'm not talking about the people that are involved. There are many, many people that believe in the Trinity, but have experiences with God. They, they manifest the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. They love people, they're compassionate, they're empathic, they want to do charitable works, uh, and all that stuff, right? And they adhere to orthodoxy. That's fine. That's fine. But the problem is, is that there are many of us, particularly right now, there is a global awakening that is happening. There is a global shaking that's happening. <laughs> They've been prophesying it. When, when, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it's been being declared for at least a, a century. If you go all the way back to the Latter Rain Movement, and only a couple of you even know what I'm talking about, but there was a movement in the 1940s called the Latter Rain Movement, and they were prophesying. A great shaking is coming, a great awakening, a great revival, and it's happening. But what it's doing is it's breaking away. It's, it's almost a return to Gnosticism because it is breaking away from the groupthink. It's breaking the mind-controlling powers of the groupthink. And make no mistake about it, when you get involved with a groupthink, there is a level of mind control that comes over you. And if you don't believe that, then break with the groupthink. Watch what happens if you say, how do we know there's a trinity? How do we know that Jesus, the man, is Jesus, the son, uh, God of very God, light of very light, eternally existent from the beginning, and that it's only Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How do we know that? How do we know that God is a trinity? How do we know? You say maybe God isn't a trinity or maybe there are, maybe Jesus isn't the only way to God because Jesus isn't central to the Godhead. And maybe you don't have to believe in the historical resurrection of Christ because the only reason the historical resurrection of Jesus was such an issue in the minds of people is because in order to stump out the Gnostics, they had to have apostolic succession and go back to one of the apostles that had been an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you come along and you start questioning that. You start saying, what about people that don't confess Jesus as Lord? What about people that have other experiences? What about the fact that I've had lots of other experiences that have awakened me and transformed me and changed me? What about the fact that some of you have had other experiences that have awakened you and changed you and transformed you? What about all that, right? What about that? Is your experience invalid because it doesn't adhere to orthodoxy? Or is your experience equally as valid? Or, or what? what's going on here? You get it? You, you get it? Now, let's look at some of this. I want to look at some of this in Scripture. Because this, this turns some of the orthodoxy on its head because... Gnosticism, this idea of experience with God, is all over in the Bible. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, uh, uh, what verse do I want to start in? Let's start in verse 7. But whatever was gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing knowing, the surpassing knowing, gnosis, 
gnosis, experiential knowledge. It would read this way. The surpassing worth of experiential knowledge, experiential knowledge, or experiencing Christ Jesus my Lord, but for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him having a righteousness that is not my own, that comes from the law, but that which is by faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know by experience, Gnosis, Christ, yes, to know by experience, Gnosis, the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at the goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So basically, he says, this one thing I do, this goal, this mark, is to have an ongoing experiential relationship or knowledge of Christ. Um, I just want to, I just want to give you a few things here to help you if you need the scriptures. I know a lot of us are past needing that, but, um, I just want to show you a few things. In Colossians chapter one, I mean, this is the death knell to, this is the death knell to religion right here in Colossians chapter one, uh, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice. And what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become his servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So Paul says, my commission, my charge, my mission from God, my vision, my vision is to give you the word of God in its fullness. And then in the language, he elaborates on what that is. So you want to hear the word of God in its fullness? It isn't this because this didn't come along for another 400 years. The word of God in its fullness is this. The mystery that has been hidden from ages and from generations. Watch. The mystery that is hidden from ages and from generations. That means it goes back way before our time, Paul's saying. There's a mystery, there's a secret hidden truth, something that exists, something that is real, something that is ontologically real, something that is true about the nature of things, that is true about the reality of things, but hasn't been disclosed until now, but has been hidden from ages and from generations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, I preach this among the Gentiles, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now is being revealed among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the word Christ does, does not just mean anointed or anointing. To a first century Jewish person, to a, a person reading the Greek Christos, the, 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 the word there means Savior, Savior, Messiah, one who saves, or a king, or one whose authority you follow. Watch what he says. He doesn't say the fullness of the word of God is the mystery of the incarnation that did not happen for generations and for ages until Jesus was born in a manger in Nazareth and the word became flesh. 
He doesn't say a mystical union was formed between God and man when Christ assumed the human, when Christ in the fullness of his divinity assumed the fullness of humanity when the word became flesh and there was a union established between God and man at the incarnation of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is central to salvation and Jesus is central to everything. Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say that. In fact, to say that, gang, those of you that say that, you have to completely contradict what Paul says is the mystery and the fullness of the word of God that Paul preached. You, 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 you are contradicting Pauline revelation when you adhere to that teaching that came around 400 years later or 200 years later, whatever it was. You get it? Because Paul says the Savior, the Messiah, the King, the Christ is in you. And that's the mystery that's always been true. It's always been so. Christ has always been in you. You've always been a part of the divine. You've always been as much Trinitarian as Jesus was Trinitarian. You've always been as much divine as Jesus revealed divinity in humanity. You are divine in humanity. You are the Word made flesh, just like Jesus is the Word made flesh. This is the truth, the mystery that always was so, but was hidden from ages and from generations. So we thought we had to keep the law to get to God. We thought we had to go through external offerings to get to God. We thought we had to go through external washings to get to God. We thought we had to go to an external temple to get to God. And watch this. We're looking outside ourselves for a savior. We're looking outside ourselves for a revelation. We're looking outside ourselves for something to govern us. And Paul says, you're missing the entire mystery. The actual mystery of Christ is the savior that you're looking for isn't outside of you. The savior that you're looking for is inside of you. The, the, the truth that you're looking for isn't outside of you. It's inside of you. The light that you're looking for isn't outside of you. It's inside of you. This is the mystery that's been hidden from ages and from generations. But now, this is the fullness of the Word of God. It did not require anybody, anybody uh, uh, significant to assume all of humanity. No! That's not in the Bible. That idea of salvation is not in the Bible. Paul says the key, the core, the foundation of the faith is an ontological reality. For those of you that need to get a dictionary for that, ontological means in the nature of things, in the reality of things. Paul says, I'm preaching the nature of things. I'm preaching the reality of things. And this is the fullness of source. This is the fullness of the divine word. This is the fullness of the word of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of glory. In other words, your hope is not connected to anything outside of you. Your hope of glory. Glory is honor. Glory is light shining. Glory is weightiness. Glory is victory. Glory is 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 a, a positive opinion of something. Glory has to do with worth. Glory, glory is the opposite of shame. Glory is the opposite of defeat. So your hope for everything, your hope of glory, your hope of honor, your hope of exaltation, your hope of favor, your hope of prosperity, your hope of healing, your hope of manifestation of power and truth, your hope, everything that you have to hope for, everything about that can come about, that can glorify you, is connected to a source that's already inside of you and has always been there throughout every generation, always since the beginning of time with humanity 
Christianity. This is available to the Gentiles. It's available to the Jews. It's available to the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Hindus and the atheists and the Christians and the Orthodox people and the Charismatics and the prophetic movement and the evangelicals. This source that connects you to a hope that will give you honor is inside you. It's inside you. And if you read all of Colossians, Paul says, in him is the fullness of wisdom and knowledge. In him is the fullness of the Godhead. You are complete in him. The Savior and the Rescuer is in you. That's why this political spirit, that's why I was on the prophets for, for connecting themselves to a political spirit, to a different Messiah. This was not just a missed word. This was not just I, I got my my feelings and my desires and my hopes all mixed up in the Trump campaign and I just got it wrong and everybody misses it once in a while and we're not Old Testament prophets and I'm so sorry that I missed it. Please forgive me for missing it. No, you connected yourself to a false gospel and a false spirit and a false Messiah because you told people that, that to believe in something outside of themselves. And, and then you turn around and say because your guy didn't get into office that now the judgment of God is coming. So you take away their hope. You connected their hope to a man, not to something that was inside of them. You connected their hope to a political spirit, not to the riches of the glory of Christ that was in them. And you need to sit down and shut up. You need to take a season off. What you did was far worse than brothers and sisters who fell into sexual sins. They fell into sexual sins. That was a sin against a, a person. That was a sin against their own body, depending on, on how that thing transpired. Maybe a sin against families. But you sinned in the spirit. You sinned in, in because you misled people and you deceived people in the name of a book and a gospel that you claim to proclaim. You need to sit down. You need to shut up. You need to take a season off. This isn't spilled milk. I'm speaking that into the atmosphere. I know they'll probably never hear it, and I'm not trying to be controversial, and I'm certainly not trying to get kicked off of, to get in Facebook jail again. <laughs> I'm just saying this is a serious thing, gang, because let, let's wipe this away. I want you to realize maybe you're someone out there that you, you've lost hope. Maybe you were a QAnon follower. Maybe you were a, 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 you, you thought Donald Trump was going to fix your life and, and give you empowerment and improve things for you financially. Maybe you're afraid we're going to become socialist or communist because you believe that's even possible for one man to do, a president to do, whatever. You believe those things. You believe those things. All right. Or maybe you believe, oh, good. Now that we have a different president, now everything's going to be rosy. Everything's going to be hunky dory. I can depend on the government now to come and rescue me. Every, anytime you do that, whether it's on the right or on the left or in the center, you're giving away your power and you're disconnecting. You, you literally disconnect from the hope of glory, from the expectation, from the positive hope that you can have of your own honor and exaltation. And I'm not talking about exaltation over other people so you can tell people what to think. All right? I'm talking about a better day for you. I'm talking about peace, a peaceful days. I'm talking about happy days. I'm talking <laughs> happy days. I'm talking about 
sitting under your fig tree and no one will tell his neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the greatest to the least. That's what Jesus said. I'm sorry. That's what Jeremiah said the new covenant would be. He said the new covenant would be a time when everyone would sit under their fig tree. Everyone would have their own land. Everyone would have their own inheritance. Everyone would have their own portion and all would know the Lord. And no one would say to his neighbor, let me teach you the Lord, for they would all know me from the greatest to the least. That's the new covenant. That's Gnosticism. That's Gnostic. That's Gnostic. So here's what I'm trying to say. Don't look outside yourself for the Savior. The Savior is in you. Don't look outside yourself for an authority. The authority is in you. The authority is in you. You know the direction to go. If you start listening to your intuition and do your shadow work, because shadow work will get in the way of intuition, and shadow work will get in the way of I mean, not doing shadow work. Your shadow will get in the way of intuition. Your your shadow, when you don't do shadow work, you project it. <clears throat> so, in other words, the key to shadow work is this. Whatever, you, you, you have to be able to take a non-judgmental look at yourself and understand the charges and the, and the movements and the things that go on inside you uh, so that you can own those things. So, are you selfish? Absolutely, we all are. Are you greedy? More than likely, we all have that in us. Are you lustful inordinately? Possibly. Are you, um, do you, do you get angry? Do you have murder in your heart? We all have those tendencies within us to be able to own those things about yourself in a non-judgmental way and recognize those things about yourself is the key. If you don't, you will disown those parts. You're, oh no, I'm not greedy. I'm not greedy at all. I, heck, I just soon give all my money away. I don't have any ego. This is why the love and light people and the tr- people trying to be egoless, they're falling in the same ditch of religion. They've just exchanged terms. Uh, what we used to call the flesh that we were trying to kill in the church, they now just call the ego. It's just a matter of semantics. Um, what they're calling love and light, we would call walking in the spirit. What they call union or division, but you, you see what I'm saying? It's just the same mistake. It's just putting a different, it, it's the same, it's the same thing. It's just got a different face on it. But here's the thing. If you, if you don't own that stuff, you know, that I can be greedy. I can be selfish. I can be, um, tempted I, with, with crazy sex or I can be, get angry when I shouldn't get angry or I have murder in my heart or whatever those things are. If you don't own those things, you project those things. You say, I don't have that. I don't have that in me. I don't have lust in me. I, I don't have evil desires in me. I don't have selfishness in me. I don't have hate in me. Well, then you disown it so it manifests itself as other than you because that's the only, that's the filter you created. When you say, I don't have that and that energy is there because that energy is coming from you, it gets projected onto other people and even gets projected out as God or spirit guides or angels or aliens or whatever you think you're hearing from, which really is just the voice of your shadow, but it's dangerous because you don't know that it's you when really it's you. I don't know. Somebody needed to hear that. (laughs) What I'm saying is all those things cloud our intuition. But ultimately, your intuition will work those things out. If you start listening from within, if you start paying attention from within, if you start going within, if you start discovering the the treasure that is within and honor it, connect it to glory. Glory means honor. Primarily, I mean, we can look at it in Strong's Concordance and all these things, but primarily in the culture of the day, glory was the opposite of shame. 
and they lived in an honor culture where their honor was more important than just about anything. <clears throat> and so to have glory was to have prestige. It was to have honor within the community. So when you honor yourself, you honor your intuition, you honor your genuine desires, you honor your experiences, you realize that there's a well of living water inside of you, you realize that there's rivers of living water inside of you, you realize that the, the Christ is inside of you, that the Savior is inside of you, that divinity is inside of you, regardless of what you call it, it's all semantics. The light is inside of you, and your goal, your, your religion, if you will, which, which just means path of devotion. That's all it means. Your path of devotion is to raising this light and letting your light shine and raising this divine spark and raising the fullness of your authentic self and releasing that and shining like a star and, and doing your highest will under love. All right. I preach at you enough. Let's see. Now, don't be naughty and report me for something that I said. <laughs> all right. How was that? Did that make sense? Or was that all over the place? So, so here's the difference. To bring it down to this, here's the difference. <clears throat> to have gnosis, to have personal experiential knowledge of Christ in you. And to honor your experience with God as being just as valid as anybody else's experience with God, even those that wrote the Bible. Sometimes requires you, in fact, often requires that you break away from the groupthink. Religion is all about groupthink. I have to believe like the group. I think it was Ben Urban that, that got me onto this. I don't know, Ben, if you originally said this, but I think I saw you either say it or you're quoting it. So I'm quoting you or I'm quoting you quoting someone else. Uh, religion is peer pressure from dead people. Religion is peer pressure from dead people. There are people that feel beholden to the Apostles' Creed, to the Nicene Creed, because without it, they are not a Christian. They are actually pledging allegiance, swearing their loyalty to a groupthink. And I'm going to say it again, to a movement that was responsible for most of the war and bloodshed in Western, in the history of Western civilization. In the West, not in the world, because the East has their own issues. They had their own Genghis Khan and their own stuff. And it's still a mess in many ways. But if you can't progress beyond that, listen, guys, we know more than we knew in the fourth century. We know more than, we, than they knew when they were writing the Bible. We have more available to us. We have, I mean, we go to workshops and trainings and listen to stuff and learn from people who have who've experienced these things. So we can have our own gnosis. Just watch out for the spirit of superiority, because that spirit of superiority is going to sleep in. Sleep in. <laughs> Slip in. My knowledge is better than your knowledge. Now you're back to trying to create your own religion. My truth is greater than your truth. My truth is higher than your truth. My God, my path, the way that I'm going is better than yours. Um, that should not be a heart. Like my heart and what I'm sharing is this is what I've learned, this is what I've studied, and this is what I've experienced. And everything I say, every time I come on, I'm articulating to you my path. I'm saying this is my pathway, this is my knowledge, this is my experience. <clears throat> and if it empowers you and encourages you and helps you, and you can take it and apply it to your life in a way that's helpful and beneficial, then good for you. If not, 
no big deal.